Blog Talk Radio. The judge and jury calls the dean of Cannabis Law Radio, Bruce Margolin. Hello, folks. Welcome to the first show on the Dean of Cannabis Law Radio. And I hope I can stand up to that title. And I believe I can, because not only am I down for the cause, I'm also very talented, shall we say, and uh, experienced criminal defense attorney. I know the law not only in the courtroom, but I also know the law that exists outside the courtroom. Why I know that is because when I was a young lawyer, when I started my practice in 1967, and this is my 50th year too, I'm very proud of that. And by the way, I've defended more marijuana cases than any lawyer in the United States of America. And I've done that continuously almost every year in my practice, except when I was in India. That's another story. And by the way, you know, one of my favorite things is talking about myself, so this is very enjoyable, but I do hope that we'll all be able to communicate and you know, make this a two-way you know, deal. There's nothing like the tango. It takes two to tango, right? And I need your, your energy. But I'll do my best along the way so you get to know me and uh, understand where I'm coming from, and maybe that'll you know, spike you up to say, you know, I like to say a few words to that guy. That's what I'm hoping for, okay? Now, you know, not because I need to hear that you're out there so much, but it's that the energy I get from people when they give me that kind of little conversation, even though it goes through the wires and the super space, God only knows for how we're getting to talk to each other like this. I guess the scientists do, but we know it's just magic. They're fooling us. Uh, anyway, let's go back to the conversation here. With the Dean of Cannabis Law Radio, we call it that because what I'm going to talk about here is the law and outside the law, the politics of pot. And I was talking about when I first became a lawyer. I'll go back to that now. I was a young lawyer, 25 years old. I've been on my own since I was 19. My father passed on when I was young. My mother was still around, but, you know, I took care of myself. And uh, I worked my way through law school. And uh, I wasn't much of a talker, a smoker, a midnight joker at that time. Matter of fact, I don't think I got stoned so I was in law school, about 23 years old. And uh, nevertheless, it wasn't a big part of my lifestyle because it was really in those days, believe it or not, even I, I'm a, I'm a valley boy and I'm kind of hip, but it wasn't a no-no. People just wouldn't smoke weed except a couple of guys across the street, Hispanic guys, we used to talk about my family like they, had, like they were killers or dope dealers that it got arrested for marijuana. I remember that. And I also remember one time when I was in seventh grade, North Hollywood Junior High School, I saw this kid walking down the junior high school in the seventh grade with a marijuana plant. He was carrying it to school, I guess, to show everybody. I'd never seen one before. But that was the extent of it, all right? So let's get back to me and my young career. Here I am, worked my way through law school. And we'll talk about my law school later on because I really enjoyed it. And somehow I grokked it and uh, kicked ass there. But anyway, going along. So here I'm a young lawyer. I get one of my first cases. There's like 20 hippies busted at a, at a house here in Hollywood. You know, that was a scene back in the 60s. Those were the good old days. Most people that were there don't talk about it because they can't. Because they say if you talk about the 60s, it means you weren't there. So let's move along. Anyway, so the point, that was a joke, by the way. Anyway, so here I'm a young lawyer in 1967. These kids got busted at a hippie house, about 20 of them. And uh, I agreed to represent every one of them for 25 bucks a piece. And the day came 
after months of arguing and pissing off and going through all the motions, one kid, kid one of the guys, was basically got convicted of all his 20. Maybe, I don't remember the details of the moment, maybe he made statements that kind of screwed him, I don't know. Nevertheless, it was time for sentencing, and I said to the judge, you know, judge, I just got out of law school, and I understand from the standards of punishment that are made by the American Bar Association that punishment, the purpose is to um, punish the intended wrong. When someone intends to do something wrong, you know, you've got to punish them for a couple of reasons, I guess, to not only punish them, but make sure the public knows you can't do things with that kind of attention. But nevertheless, I said, Judge, it's a marijuana case. What is the intended wrong here that could justify you putting this kid in jail? The judge thought about it, obviously, looked around. Dove Gown was a very young looking 25 year old lawyer, okay? And he's probably a guy that's half my age, but he looked old with gray hair or whatever. He said, Well, son, he broke the law. I said, Uh oh. I'm not going to be able to fix this problem in the courtroom. I don't care how many freaking cases I'm going to win, okay? And let me tell you, I went on to win a lot of cases, I'm going to tell you. I'll tell you those stories later. It's a special time. But anyway, beyond that, so at that point, I said, boy, I better get outside the courtroom and do something about this because this ain't going to happen even with how good a lawyer I might be or how many cases I might beat. And I started an organization well, I was walking back to my to my office, and I was I was down at the Statler Hilton Hotel at that time in downtown Los Angeles. Shared an office with one of my guys from high school that went to law school with me, went to service, so he gave me this office with his cousins. It was a very nice office in the Statler Hilton Hotel, yeah, a little cubby corner. Anyways, I went back to my office and walked across the parking lot, and I'm thinking NAACP the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. It still exists. People are still down for that in the WACP. I guess colored people, I, I, I kind of think it's a nice term myself. I don't know this black and white, big and orange. I'm not getting it, you know. I don't Colored people, but I guess colored people is too ambiguous. Is black not ambiguous? It's ridiculous. But we'll move along with that, all right? Nevertheless. I'm thinking about legalizing marijuana, and I come up with an acronym for that purpose, Campaign Advocating the Abolition of the Marijuana Prohibition, CAMP, C-A-A-M-P. I wanted to match NAACP, you know. I changed it later on, leaving out one of the A's and call it the Campaign uh, Advocating the... Um, marijuana, you know, campaign uh, against the marijuana prohibition, and that that, that um, little organization kind of took fire around the country. Many other little chapters opened up in Florida and other places, and we had a we had a real cool little truck we drive around with a big weed on the outside of it. Now, I myself, I, I never uh, brought Mike that kind of a. Uh, Stop into the courtroom. I always dress nicely, wear a suit and tie, talk respectful, because I knew if I was going to represent a cause like that, I had a personal responsibility to do it in a mature, 
respectful way. And so my point is, even though I might have had guys driving around with trucks and weed on them in a time when that was considered a big no-no, I didn't bring that into the courtroom. I was respectful, never put trips on people's head about it. But anybody know I was down for the cause. Nevertheless, this little this organization camp, um, you know, it was great, a lot of fun. You know, it's very much a Jack Herrera style situation, okay? But it make my life out of it because I was in courtroom every day. Jack, as you may know, of those people out there that may know Jack, I knew him personally and still have him in my heart. And matter of fact, I just happened to see his son last week, and we got before last. Uh, and we had a big hug and some nice times. It was at an event I had for my 50th year in the practice of law in my office here in West Hollywood. It was a beautiful event. All my old bros came. It was really nice, the people that showed up to help me celebrate my 50th year. And uh, nevertheless, talking about Jack Herrera, he had his organization that took hold later on. It was based on a hemp legalization platform. As most of you know or don't, he wrote a book, did a little study, and came up with the Emperor Wears No Clothes, which describes a lot of the underpinnings of how prohibition occurred. Shall we say, the people behind it and their motives. They made it clear that there was no questionable, unquestionable that their motives were not pure, and they were just picking on this poor plant because they don't like the competition of this sacred herb, not only because it has the medicinal qualities which had been suppressed by most people to even know about them. I'm sure these people in the government did. They want to suppress that because, guess what? Who's our biggest bros? The pharmaceutical companies. They were not down for that having that marijuana, okay? And I'm sure they're not down for it at the moment either. They're crapping their pants. But nevertheless, here we are in that campaign in 1967, going around making speeches and speaking of the engagements. As a matter of fact, I have an article up on my wall. Somebody sent it to me about two years ago. It was written by my law school. It's a front page article where I spoke. I was invited to speak on behalf of A.L. Weirin. Now, you might not know that person because you guys are puppies. But he was the head of the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties um, Association, I mean, the, uh, whatever they call it, American Civil Liberties Union. They're still, you know, a pretty hot organization, you must know. I hope you do. I mean, they are saviors of us in so many ways. But nevertheless, I was asked to speak on behalf of the ACLU, which is huge for a guy who's only been in practice at that point about a year and a half, two years. Probably because I volunteered this represents some kids who got busted out in uh, CSN, what they call that, uh, in the Valley, that uh, at school, CCSA, whatever they are. Anyway, they got busted for demonstrating against the war in Vietnam. In those days, what I would do is volunteer to be able to help different causes because, number one, I was building a practice. Let's get real, okay? And it turns out the more you give, the more you get. I didn't give very much, but in this case, I took on a group of kids. I think it was about 25 of them in this uh, parade out in, uh, at school, but they were arrested for some 
a reason that I can't recall. And I guess I got the case dismissed, okay, against all of them. I don't remember how or what. I'm sure I didn't know what the fuck I was doing about it. I didn't know anything about how to fight something as big as the Constitution, you know, and fight for it. But I guess I learned a little something along the way. Anyway, so I got, I won all this case. I was invited to speak on behalf of A.L. Warren at this big event on La Cienega at this very fancy restaurant. And uh, I get up there. It was full of judges. Everybody expected him to be there. And it turns out he got sick, and they called me like the night before, could I come speak? I said, okay, sure, why not? What do I know about speaking? And I think I probably mumbled then as bad as I do now. I mean, but for some reason, uh, people invite me to speak all the time. I guess I'll use a microphone. It's much better. That's the reality, okay? But get, I hope you can hear me tonight. And if you can't, please give my homeboy here that's running and managing this uh, radio station heads up about turn it up or get him a mic or whatever it might take to make my voice clear enough to just hear it. But anyway, here I am, invited to go speak at um, this big event instead of the place of the head of the ACLU. And what I talked about was the fact that marijuana should be legal. And uh, there's a big article written by my law school, Southwestern Law School, it says, lawyer advocates the legalization of marijuana. And the article went all about how what a wonderful lawyer I was on top of it, which is very nice because, you know, when you're in law school, you just get out and you make you make some kind of paper like that, and all these kids see it, you know, that spreads quickly amongst kids that are going to schools where you graduated from, and they see a young guy, you know, getting a lot of attention and coming out for a cause. And so that was the, the first time that there was really any public recognition of this organization. And I talked about the legalization of marijuana in very many, many platforms over the years. I, um, I, um, this is, I'm giving you the backstory because I trust we're going to have a lot of opportunities to speak about the whole story. And if you miss it, don't worry. My memoirs are being worked on right now, okay? So... If you come tune in late, you can get the book. And it's being recorded. It's being recorded? Yeah. Oh, my God, this is golden. Anyway, so um, here we are, about 26 years old now, maybe. And um, I was a free spirit. I wasn't against the government. They're not my enemy. I was for freedom. And because... I was on my own and didn't have any obligations really except to myself to take care of myself. And not that I was a hippie, but I liked the freedom of the lifestyle. I always wanted to be a hippie, but I don't think I've ever made it because you have to really let go and let God. And I'm still holding on to my desires to practice the law and all that, maybe. I could be a hippie lawyer. Matter of fact, it was, I remember one guy was a hippie lawyer. He was in, he was in Venice in those days. He had real long hair and a long beard. I, I, I admired him a lot. Another guy was in law school. Well, this is the trip, okay? This guy had long hair, which was unusual in those days. And during the summer, he wore all white clothes. And the winter, he wore all black clothes. The same outfits over and over again. Every time I saw him there, the whole freaking time, he was ahead of me, like a year. 
I admired this guy because he had this long hair and he, he was down for this kind of lifestyle. Turned out I saw him getting sworn in for the bar and sure enough, guess what he was wearing? A freaking suit and tie. Broke my whole spirit. <laughs> I thought this guy is copping out on, on the whole scene. But I didn't cop out. That's my story. I love the people that came into my life as a result of my participation in the legalization of marijuana. Not only did they come to my life because of that activity, because they came to me to represent them. And at that time, when I got out of law school, I was a very good law student. I was very on top of my game when it came to constitutional law. And I really want to be a defense lawyer, no question about it. And I had not been a good student before I went to law school. I went to Valley College, barely got through, it was a 2.2 average, okay? I struggled through you know, high school, and, and, and I really didn't focus. I love learning, though. As a matter of fact, before I left the Valley College, they did an aptitude test. They suggested an aptitude test. And you know what? These, law, these schools may have their, they may be on their game because guess what they suggested I should be in, in the future? A disc jockey. <laughs> now, I told my, I told my, my, uh, my counselor, Dr. Korn, about my ambitions, okay? Let me give you a backstory on this Dr. Korn, okay? The first day of class or sometime in the beginning of it, he walked into the courtroom and he was a teacher that was about uh, teaching uh, writing, something like that, reading. I don't know what the hell it was. I couldn't read or write, so I didn't know what the freaking class was about. And he walks in the courtroom. He walks in that courtroom. He walks in the, into the, into the uh, classroom. He's got a book in his hands. He starts ripping out the pages, throwing the book against the wall, kicking it, spitting at it. And we have the gross thing you could think he could do with that book, okay? And he gave a lecture how just because it's written doesn't make it sacred. That was a very good way to express that, and I really appreciated that because, let me tell you, this whole world's built on bullshit, okay? One guy makes it up, next guy writes it down, and next thing it all becomes the God's gospel, okay? I mean, it's such bullshit. I'm seeing, and I get interviewed all the time on these uh, different kinds of uh, newspaper people, okay? Or for other things. And by the time it comes out, based on the writer and the editor, it could be three other people tired of talking about it. And just caution. And then it becomes a real peacock. And they say, oh, that's what's about this guy. That's this guy. This is this guy. This is this guy. You know, over and over again, people repeat the same stuff. In my case, because I'm blessed, what they picked up about who I am is, as of late, like a wildfire, okay? People just think I'm the dog of dogs because they think I'm the guy, okay? I'm going to tell you my backstory to see how much of the guy I really am. I was just trying to make a buck between you and me, okay? I was a young, you know, looking to make some dollars and have a career and have a practice. But again, I was getting back to the fact that what was so wonderful about these times with these people I was representing because they turned me on to the philosophy of dharmic path. They turned me on to they turned me on to ways of thinking that I really wasn't hip to. And they turned me on the books that I 
never even heard of it or had an opportunity to think about. For example, Alan Watts, The Taboo Against Knowing Yourself, was a book that my girlfriend hit me up with. And books of like philosophical stuff where you kind of try to look at the big picture and understand what it's about. And that's what these kids did for me. They they took me out of the valley and ended up moving the city in a three-story house on the, in the ceiling they're up in the attic with the Martis. The place was painted so cool. And it was just out of law school. I had an old, I, I always drove around an old car. When I got back, I went to Europe when I was in law school the first year and then the second, third year too. That's another story. I'll tell you about it real quick if you want to hear it. What? Okay, guess you do. Now, this story is when I was in law school, the first year, I wanted to go to Europe. And I didn't have a pot to piss in, okay? I took care of myself. I was selling women's shoes at night and on the weekends. Reed shoes in the valley. I loved it, by the way. I loved all the hotties that come in there. They just buy shoes for me just to be nice. I got that job just before Christmas. My friend hooked me up with her. And during that Christmas season, in the 10 highest salesmen in the whole chain stores throughout the United States of selling shoes when I first started my, my career there, okay? So on the weekends, all I had to do is go there for, you know, three hours or four hours on Saturday and uh, Friday night sometimes. And I would just sell those shoes like they were hotcakes. Girls would buy five pairs of shoes just to be nice to me. And then all the other things you put on top of those little doilies and little bows and stuff like that. It was, it was a riot. Anyway, so here I was. I wasn't rich. But anyway, so I decided I wanted to go to Europe because it's so fascinating. And I had no money to really go there. I think I had a grand or something. But somehow I took an airplane. Those, those days, guess what the airplane was a with a one with the, the wings, that were they, were the, what they call it, propellers. I mean, it took, took 17 hours to freaking Europe. I think we flew over to Canada or something, the cheap route or something. I think it was a polar route. <laughs> and uh, I swear, that's how long it took. It, it just seemed like days on that thing. Anyway, so I, I got to Europe on my own because I tried to get my friends to come with me. They're a bunch of chicken shits, you know. They didn't have the balls enough to come out. So I went there on my own, and I loved it. I was so in love with that trip. I was so in love with being free. I stayed in youth hostels and hitchhiked the whole way. Didn't spend any money, which I love, you know. Didn't change change my pants for three weeks or three months, whatever. I was there about two and a half months. And I went to all the museums. And um, I just really enjoyed being on my own, and I enjoyed the experience of it. And I met a lot of people I enjoyed. And I got back from, to, I was considered not coming back to law school. But, gee, I just wanted to have this life forever. Because I just finished my first year, and I did pass. And I also passed what's called the junior bar. I went to law school that you could get into, and I want to inspire anybody out there that might not know about this. All they had to do is get out to Valley Junior College with a 2.0. That's a two-year degree. And I could go to law school for a four-year course with just a 2.0. So I heard about this law school, Southwestern, in Los Angeles. It's well-known. A lot of mayors went there and judges and stuff. And so um, I was admitted to law school with a 
And I really didn't know what I was even doing. I, I didn't know what I could do with my life to manage I wanted to go to UCLA, but UCLA had to have a 2-3 grade point. I get a 2-2. Two, two. That was a, my fate. And so um, I go to law school, and um, the first year, I just did terrible. It was the worst. I mean, I, I think I got two Ds and an F or something, okay? I don't know what I was doing myself. At the same time, I tried to do, go to school like at USC, but I really couldn't afford that. I didn't have any money to speak of. So I, I tried to take a couple of courses that maybe expository writing or some other freaking course like that. It was out of my league, okay? I think I dropped out of both of those. And so one of my good friends introduced me to Southwestern. I said, oh, I'm going to do it myself. I guess I'm just going to have to go work the rest of my days. He says, Wayne Bruce, I know you. He says, I know you can do it if you want to. And I also remember when I got out of high school, I took I went into the, into, uh, the service. Why? Because to avoid the draft. That's how fucked up things were. They were drafting people's ass and putting them in freaking Vietnam or wherever they take us Laos and for two years and it, it was terrible, okay? Especially for a nice little Jewish boy. He doesn't like that kind of stuff, dirt and everything, you know? <laughs> no, I do like dirt, but I just don't like the idea of taking a shower as much of guys. No, that, that's not the story. It's just, it's against my, I, I want to avoid it. Notwithstanding the fact that my father, may I tell you about my father for a moment, because the backstory I think you'll, you'll appreciate later on. My father was a DI in the Marines. A DI is the most kick-ass guy you could imagine, okay? Those are the drill instructors. Those are the people responsible for setting these poor kids, like myself at 17 years over, to, to go do battle. It's like six weeks. They got six weeks to kick their ass and change who they are. That was my father. But by the time my father, by the time he had me, after being a tough guy his whole life, a nice tough guy, by the time he got to me, he just loved my ass. It just it was just so kind to me. And uh, he was no longer making me, you know, stand in detention for three hours or do a bunch of push-ups. He did actually make me stand up whenever I see a freaking American flag on the television. I mean, that was our story line. If we saw this American flag, we, all my brothers and I, which had three of us together, had to salute and stand while the freaking flag was on the, on the screen of TV. It was fun, though. I imagine my dad liked it. He was a really good guy. And I miss him. So what do you do? You know, I think back and see, I think about more and more in, in this stage about the importance of your parents. People hear about their whole life. But they're really, they're who you are, you know, whether you think so or not. Even though you might even not even know them, this DNA code and all the other things that come down, you know, it's a connection that really can't be avoided. It can't be not acknowledged. Nevertheless, so my father was a kick-ass guy. I loved him. And I, I remember going to service when I was, so we don't avoid the draft. My brother, Buddy, he said, look, why don't you join the reserves? This is the deal. If you go in the service for six months, you have three years after that in the reserves, and then I could take the reserves out the California reserves. And so, you know, Tough it out and do it. If I had been smart enough, and if I had been connected, if I knew about the other side of the mountain from the valley into the city, 
I would do the rest of the little nice Jewish boys like I did. We go to a freaking doctor, get a letter, tell him I got a problem with my whatever I can figure out, and I avoid the draft. I didn't know about such thing. Draft doctors. You know, that was a hot tip. There's a difference between a valley and a city. I don't want to put down the valley. I love it, okay? Although I do say that I know how I got out of the valley. You want to know? I climbed over it. King Martin escaped. That's how I got out. Nevertheless, the point is, is that I didn't know about getting avoiding the draft. So I um, went in at 17 freaking years old. We're getting back to this whole story here. When I went into the, into the, into the uh, army, I saw some young guys that were the freaking lieutenants. And they were much more than anybody else. Most of them were even younger. I said, what the fuck's going on here? How do these guys get to be lieutenants? The rest of us just peons. And guess what I found out? Four years of college after high school. Four years of college after high school. That was a hot tip. Especially if you want to go into ROTC and have it all worked out. You could even take, you could take the ROTC courses in high school and you go in as a lieutenant. My older brother, which I'll talk about later because it's kind of painful, he went to UCLA by the first one in the generations of my family who were so proud of him. He went to UCLA and he took the ROCT course. And he was going to the Marines, and not the Marines, into the Army as a lieutenant. And so kind of a sad thing happened at that point. And I'm like, it's very heartbreaking to still talk about it to this day. Remember, he passed on. It was a big blow. But nevertheless, that's a lot of my backstory. And a lot of people make what makes me so intent on trying to understand the meaning of life. So what happened here is um, I went to, I told you I went to Europe. Now I was in law school. I, was, I realized the difference between enlisted men and uh, and college kids were that uh, they had the education. So my friend said, look at this, I know you're smart, you can do it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to tell myself that either I'm going to do it, I'm going to, if I don't do it, it's not because I didn't try. And let me tell you something. My backstory is this. I was very proud of the fact that I control myself and my thoughts and my desires. It first started when I was five years old. I was turning five years old, and I remember it was my birthday. Actually, we were living in a trailer, then we came back from the East Coast to live in California in a trailer. And so what happens is that um, while we're um, living in a trailer, there was a party put on for my birthday. And that party was um, my my five-year-old birthday party. And I remember, here you go. But, but I remember saying um, to myself, gee, I'm five years old. This is freaking big. I'm, I'm like growing up. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something that I've really never been able to do before. And something I was really attached to, I'm going to give it up. It was called sucking my thumb. I really love sucking my thumb, but I knew I was now five years old and I should stop. And I was able to stop. And that was a big lesson for me. And the second one in my 
philosophy and my character was when I was nine years old, I wanted to train very badly for my for, for the holidays, Christmas or Hanukkah. And uh, although we don't we both celebrate Christmas, but who can avoid the excitement and fun of it and the charm of it? But anyway, it was one of the holiday, it was that holiday, and I wanted to train very bad, an electric train. And my father, Morris, told me he was going to get it for me. But at that time, we were living out in Palmdale area, and it was a very long trip to go in the city. And so um, it turned out the time came when it was like the holiday event, and I was supposed to get my gift. And sure enough, it didn't come. And I remember that night saying to myself, you know, but what I need a train for, really? I, and the train was going around the track. I probably get bored with it in half an hour, you know, choo-choo train. I don't, really, I don't need the train. I don't, I don't, I don't really, I can let go of it. And I did, just like I stopped sucking my thumb when I was five years old. That doesn't sound like a big deal. But then guess what? The train came the next day. My father bought it from the, from the city. And you know what? I'd already changed my mind about wanting that train. I realized that it was all my own thinking that didn't make this desire go away. And therefore, I knew I was capable of doing things I really wanted to do, like what I've done throughout my career. And so it came time to go back to law school. And I said to myself, as I alluded to earlier, that I'm going to make up my mind, if I don't do this, it's because I'm just a failure. I'm not going to cop out. So they let me back in the school. I don't know why that they did. I don't know why they didn't throw me out and say, you're just not a good law student, but they did. And so one of the first courses I took in law school was torts. And that law school teacher was named Beverly Rubens. She had been a police officer and then went to law school herself at night and became a law professor. She was very thin, skinny, not pretty, but the words that came out of her mouth were like golden. She would teach you the law in a way that made it come alive. For example, just recently, my son got into UCLA law. I'll brag about him in a few minutes. I could, I could go on the whole show bragging about my children because they're fabulous, okay? They've all gone to Ivy League schools and all that garbage. Anyway, at least Berkeley, all, they all went to Berkeley. All, they went, two of them went to Columbia. One went to Harvard Law School. The other one went to, they went to UCLA. He's in UCLA right now. Anyway, I went to Mickey Mouse schools all the way. Okay, guys. So the bottom line is, here it was time to go back to law school. I made up my mind I'm going to do this or do or die. And I had this teacher, Beverly Rubin, so who could describe the law of ways that made it come alive. And also very exciting. For example, in, in, in real property law, you know, they tell you about fiefdoms and fiefdoms and the dividing property and all that. She described it. Everybody, I want you to close your eyes and imagine three men riding on a horse in the country, galloping, and coming the other direction to another two men galloping, or three men galloping again. And they come to a place on top of a mountain, and they all get off. And one man reaches to the ground and pulls up a clump of dirt and hands it to the other man. And then they get back on their horses and they leave. And so that's the way they transfer title property. That's how it started. 
And then she goes on to explain that what they wrote is contracts and deeds and all that crap. So she made it come alive. And she'd also be very exciting. She would excite you about becoming a lawyer. I'll give you one example. I love her, by the way. She said, I just spoke to her some time ago. This example, she said, oh, let me tell you about my, uh, one of my students' kids. You know, I, she, I had her last year, and she graduated, passed the bar, and, and she went to a celebration. It was a, um, it was a, a wedding. And at the wedding, everybody got food poisoning. And we all hired her. And she just settled a case for $1 million. And she had no case before that. That's very inspiring for a young law student to hear stories like that. Okay, this is how she would inspire us, okay? So they came to do the first test. And this test was about torts. And they would ask you questions about how facts fit into the law. And you're supposed to explain the law and the facts. As a matter of fact, this particular teacher, I'll explain to you more about her, Beverly Rumish, she created an approach towards law school called, uh, of course, taking tests called IRAC, I-R-A-C. She invented this approach, how to take tests on the bar exam, etc. As a matter of fact, this approach is being used all over the country currently to every school in the nation, just about, almost some of them call it a little something different, but it shares it's very clear. The first thing you do when you see a question, you find out what the issue is. Did this guy commit a robbery? That's the question. It's so easy as the facts behind the questions, you know, they give you a storyline. So the, you say, did, did, he, did, he, um, did he commit a robbery? And so then you say the issue. Then you say the rule. The rule of law is robbery is the unlawful, unconsented to taking the property of another with force or violence. And then you apply the facts that you got, the application, I-R-A-C, the application of those facts to the law. And then you come to a conclusion. And so in that way, she also taught that the application is the most important thing. They want to see how you're going to... Uh, Consider the facts, how you're going to and analyze the facts, how you compare the facts, how the different ways that you could look at the facts. That's the analyzation. So she was a very good teacher. She went out later on to open her own law school. And she, the first day, the first test was going to be um, given back to us as to how we did. I have to admit that I, that I knew about, about some of her, her thinking because. I got to law school every day with a group of guys who drive from the valley. And along the way, they would kind of give me a heads up and teach me. You know, they put me under their wing. They were like two years ahead of me or three years ahead of me, something like that. And they gave me a lot of hot tips along the way. But nevertheless, so this it came time for the, the teacher to come out to hand out the grades. And she said, I'm going to read this answer, this, this, this essay from this student to you to show you about um, how this is supposed to be done. He got the highest grade in the class and he misspelled the first four words of his essay, which was intentional infliction of mental distress. That was one of the torts. That's what tort is. It's an action from one person to the other for intentional infliction of mental distress. And she said, but you know what? It doesn't make a difference you could spell as a lawyer. 
Matter of fact, you don't have to worry about your grammar because you'll have a secretary that'll do that for you. And I thought, and then she went on to read my class, my my essays at class. And at that moment, I thought I died and went to heaven because she explained all they want to do is see your analyst, how you analyze the thing. If you're always sloppy, if they can read it, they can make out what's going on. Doesn't make a difference whether you can spell. And I wasn't well read. That's probably why I couldn't spell for openers. But nevertheless, I was a good law student, and I loved the law, and I loved going to law school. And every summer, after I went that first year to Europe and studied those youth hostels, I would um, end up in Europe again. I'll tell you how. When I went to these youth hostels, there was like a, like a little organization, like, yeah, I think you have to join. And I got a newsletter, and like the... The second part of my second year of law school, don't forget it's a four-year law school. You have to take a junior bar, by the way, the first year. A junior bar is like a, a, a mini bar. It takes only one day instead of three days. But if you don't get past that, you can't continue with law school. This is called an unaccredited law school at that time. You, in order to be credited in the sense that you could go on with the bar, that you have to take a junior bar to show them you got your guts, you got your stuff. So I did pass that. So when I went to I went to Europe, I told you it's been how you thought. So I was second year now. I get this letter from the youth hospital organization saying they're looking for leaders to lead bicycle trips to Europe. So what the hell? What the hell? I'll go out there and check it out. It was all the way in Covina, okay? I lived over here. I think I lived in the city, but Covina at that time seemed like that could be the moon. Don't forget, in between here and Covina, was five wasn't it wasn't you know ten structures or something, you know. I go out there all the time. I go to court. Uh, I go to court all over the freaking place. I go to Riverside and uh, and uh, you know all all the places. You know, to Larry County. I I got cases in San Francisco. I got cases in, in Upper Upper State and you know, all over the place. Anyway, that's the point. The point is, in those days, on a weekend, I drive out to West Covina was kind of nuts, but I went. And so I got there, and about fifty people were there, and most of them were teachers. Okay. I guess applying for this opportunity to lead trips to Europe on bicycle. It's called, you know, bicycle use house for trips. And for some reason, all those 50 people, me being the only one who was not a teacher, I was selected to be to see if I could qualify. And I was one of five people. So in order to get past the, 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 the first election, you had to kind of spend a weekend with the one that kind of supervised things. She was a very cool girl. And uh, in Hammond, California, and they would kind of test your personality. One thing you had to do is you had to freaking ride your bicycle from Hammond to Idlewild. Now, between you and me, I didn't even know how to freaking ride a 10-speed bicycle, okay? I had to try to fake it because that's what youth officers did, I guess. I hitchhiked, you know? But nevertheless, I pushed that bicycle all the way up the hill. And I remember the, 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 when we had a campfire, and it, she, this woman talked about who we were and what she thought of us. And you know what she said? She thought I was brash. It kind of hurt my feelings. But I guess it's one way to describe my personality in those days. I don't know. I was very forthcoming, I suppose. And uh, but nevertheless, I was selected. I was selected, and I, and I was offered the opportunity to take 10 kids to Europe on bicycle, we, we would bike from from London to to 
to the top of France and fly from France all the way down to Paris and Paris all the way down to, to uh, lower parts of, of uh, France and then we go across to, to Switzerland and Germany and I think we ran a boat, we took a boat up the, the canals in Holland and it was all paid for by this freaking American Dishouse Association. It was just fantastic. I loved it. A couple of, I hit on a couple of these girls. It was really nice too. That was nice. And uh, and it was great because it didn't cost you anything and I didn't have any money anyway. So I got to do that in two summers. I don't know why I brought this up at the moment. I must have this is a storyline. But that was here I'm back in law school and I get past the first year, I get past the second year, and I get past the whole trip, the whole four years. And it's time to take the bar. And let me explain something to you, okay? These law schools, I don't know why one's different than the other. Why does some get much better results on the bar than others? Maybe it's the quality of students that they pick to go to law school, you know? They know how to study. They show their stuff, whatever. My law school passed about 35%, okay? Which is not a lot of percentage to say you have to put four years and hope you're going to pass, right? However, I took that bar and um, it was, of course, I, oh, by the way, before I took the bar, I was not only, I was grading for Beverly Rubens for her bar association, her, her bar uh, preparation course, I was grading books for her, and I was taking the bar review course. And even though I went to Southwestern, and everybody in this bar review course went from all of the schools all over the country, and it was 750 of them, okay? I had the second highest grades in that law school bar review course. And the first guy that had the highest was number two at Harvard. Now, I don't know. I, the bottom line is I probably read this stuff over and over again. All I just read the friggin' bar, former bar review um, uh, questions that they did before. I just studied, studied, studied. And I, I played a lot, too, but I studied. Anyway, so my point is that I passed the bar the first time. And I was very pleased about that, you can imagine. I was so excited about whether I passed or not. Guess what? In those days, you couldn't find out if you passed the bar until maybe the next day you get the newspaper. There wasn't no internet or bullshit like that. Just no access to stuff. So what I did is I took one of my girlfriends at that time, um, and I liked a lot. She was a lot of fun. We went to San Francisco. I probably hitchhiked up there to get the newspaper, the San Francisco Chronicle, it would come out like at 2 o'clock in the morning. So they'd get the, 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 the news for the next day. And so I got the paper and we sat down at this table. And sure enough, there was my name on that, on that passage list. And I jumped up and kissed the waitress. I got to piss my girlfriend off. <laughs> anyway, I was very happy. And it's kind of unbelievable to me because I never expected to really accomplish that. But I wanted to. You know, my father one time said to me, he wanted me to be a lawyer. And I wanted to be a lawyer too. But I, I did, I kind of felt was, I couldn't do it, you know. And I made some snide remark to him about, you know, it's probably because you just want, I hate to even say it, it hurts my feelings to say it, a feather in your cap. And I could see you got hurt by that. 
And I can't believe I use that terminology. I'm talking about maybe 16 years old. I'm embarrassed to even talk about it. Being disrespectful of my father. But I guess I did become a lawyer. And I think my father would be proud of me. He was a Marine. You know, he talks about, he said, and I talked about this earlier. He says he was a Marine when the ships were made of wood and the men were made of iron. That's how long ago that was. Anyway, so honor my father and my brother also, Ralph, the one that I told you about that was in UCLA, about ready to go into service. He wanted, he was studying to be a lawyer too. That was his ambition. And so I guess it was something I really hoped I could do somehow, some way. And the backstory was, remember that professor I talked about, Dr. Korn, who threw the books all over the ground? Anyway, he was also my counselor in junior college. And I told him I wanted to be a lawyer. You know what he said? He laughed. He said, you've been lucky to get out of junior college. Can you believe that? So you got to be careful who you listen to, you know? And uh, sometimes the ones that think they know the most, and maybe like that Dr. Korn, um, act like he was so in control and so hip. He didn't really see my my potential. But I understand why probably because I... Oh, by the way, another thing about this guy. Okay, I'll give you an example, all right? The final exam, he gives me a friggin' F on it, okay? Why? Everything was good except I misspelled except. I spelled it A-C-C-E-P-T instead of E-X-C-E-P the way I used it. It was still right. It was just the wrong except, okay? And that friggin' guy gave me an F on my final even like everything else, because he doesn't accept misspellings. Anyway, so um, I became a lawyer, and we're back to the lawyer thing, and I'm back to the stage where I'm in a young career, and I started this uh, campaign to legalize it, and my career took off on me. And at that time, what I was going to tell you about is that the law was very much in my favor, because, um, how much more time do we have? Nine. Nine more minutes? Is that right? Yeah. Oh, oh boy. Figured I can't. I, okay, I, I need some water. Okay, let's get some water here. Where's my where's the water? I had a glass. Maybe in the other room. Thank you. Anyway, so um, I'm back in the law school. I get out of law school. And uh, what's important about this is that when I get out of law school, the laws have become very favorable in a sense to protect our constitutional rights. We have what's called the Warren Court. That's the Chief Justice. And at that time, there was a lot of changes being made in many areas of the law, and one was the criminal law. And one of the things that they changed was this. They realized that police officers would ignore the Constitution, violate people's rights, and there'd be no, no consequences they would simply uh, be ignored and uh, people would be denied their rights and end up in jail or prison even though they were not given any kind of a proper treatment under the law. So the court also saw that notwithstanding that these cops were breaking the law, the constitutional laws, they weren't being punished. The DA is not going to punish their own cops. And uh, 
All they cared about was putting people in jail and didn't give a shit about the Constitution, you know. And who's going to back who's going to back off from that? The courts, those courts that they go to in court every day, downtown Los Angeles, they're sucking it up to DAs. You know, they're all bros. They're in court with them all day together. Most of them are ex-DAs, okay? Uh, you know, sit around, you know, we don't discuss the cases, counsel. We just, uh, you know, smoke cigarettes together, you know, and drink a couple of booze after work. Anyway, that's beside the point. I mean, God bless the prosecutors. I have no problem with them. I respect their their view of things. And I trust their relationships are honest and with integrity and ethical. But that's my suspicions that, they, that there's a lot more intimacy between these courts, these judges, and the prosecution side. You know, they do a lot of things about the, in the courtrooms are supposed to make up for the, the unfairness of the court. But I'll tell you about that later. What I'm going to finish the story with this. The Supreme Court ruled that the only way to stop these cops from doing these things is to suppress the evidence that they recovered as a result of their unlawful acts. One act is to kick doors in without knocking and noticing. Saying, oh, police officers, open up, we have a warrant. Now, that law was in place to protect people's privacy, number one, and number two, to also protect people from violent resistance to unlawful entries, unexpected entries. You know, some of them lose the door, they kick in the door, you fucking want to shoot them or whatever, you know? So the law was in place not only to protect innocent people that might be in, in the midst of these violent uh, ways to defend against somebody breaking your house, but also to protect the police officers from them getting hurt, and like I say, innocent people are bystanders. So it's supposed to knock notice. And so the court said, we're going to suppress the evidence if they don't violate the, they don't follow the Constitution. We're going to take from what they call the fruit of the poison tree away from them. Take the fruit away from them. The fruit is the conviction. The fruit is seeing people go to jail. That's what they want. Now, is that wrong? I guess that's the way they feel they did a good job and that they, you know, they, they saved society. But anyway, the case came to called Map for Ohio that, that it also helped in the, in the constitutional rights of our, our citizens. And I came along at the time out of law school. I told you it's very good in constitutional law. That's when I backed up with the story about my law school career. And I was very on top of the, the Constitution. And guess what? The cops didn't know it. They didn't know anything about knock notice. They didn't know it. They were never trained any about this stuff. Even the DAs didn't know it. Even the judges didn't know it, a lot of it. But I came out of school and I had a little pamphlet of books with me in, in case law. And I'd be able to cite that case law. And I had cases dismissed daily, sometimes as many as three or four, in, in, in two, three or four preliminary hearings a day, with just that not notice issue. And so things have changed over the years. And I'll explain that to you in later programs. And I also want to talk about the legalization of marijuana and the status of where we are standing with right now throughout the country and the licensing, which is part of my practice. Uh, you know, my telephone number, I forgot to tell you that. I guess I'm losing it. Got to hustle business. You got to know who I am and where I am. My name is Bruce Margolin, M-A-R-G-O-L-I-N. I have offices on Beverly Drive in Beverly Hills. My telephone number, I'm sure you'll be able to remember this without writing it down. I hope you can. 1-800-420-LAWS, L-A-W-S, 
laws. 1-800-420-LAWS. I'm down for the cause. And my website is 420laws.com. 420laws.com. And on my guide, you'll see, amongst other things, the Margolin Guide to State and Federal Marijuana Laws. By the way, my new 2017 is going to say the Margolin Guide to State and Federal Cannabis Laws. Because we call it, that's a proper term. Anyway, you'll get my guide online. Check it out. Just scroll down to the green booklet from 2016. My 2017 will be coming out soon. This is my 21st anniversary of my guide. It's used by all my bros, the courts, a lot of lawyers. They come up to me all the time saying, thank you for that guide. Because it tells a story in a way that people can understand it. Explains the cases that have come down from the Court of Appeals and medical marijuana law cases. It explains almost anything you need to know, including your constitutional rights, including the new laws and licensing right now under AB 266 and Prop 64. It's a hot tip, okay? 420laws.com. I hope to talk to you guys again. I hope next time you, I, I get on, on this thing that you will hit me up. I don't know if anybody called in or not. I'm not privy to that. Uh, if they have, I don't think my my uh, director wanted me to get involved with it at the moment because I was so hot tonight. You want to break my uh, my uh, <laughs> my thing, and so I think I've got a couple minutes left. So I want to talk about one final thing that I want people to remember. When people say it's medical, that's beautiful and it's totally medical. Herb is sacred. It's medical, no question. It can help people in so many ways. When they say it's recreational, though, I think they're missing the point. It gets you high is what it does. And high is a higher state of awareness. And so high is a, a mental state. And therefore, I think the better term would be spiritual, medical and spiritual. And so I want to talk a lot about that in the future, what people's thoughts are about that. And I also want to give you one more hot tip, okay? My new website and my thing, 420yoga.com, 420yoga.com. Check it out. I'm trying to bring this to the public. I love yoga, by the way. I'm a yogi. I've been a yogi for 50 years. I'm down for the I'm down for the owning. I'm down for the asana, and I'm down for practicing law. So call me if you need me. I'm here for you. 1-800-420-LAWS. 1-800-420-LAWS.com. Bruce Margolin, I'm down for the cause. And come back and listen to the Dean of Cannabis Law Radio, hosted by attorney Bruce Margolin, 50 years, your marijuana advocate for the change of laws. And watch it up. Alice B. Toklas. Matter of fact, I have her book in my hand, and we're going to review some of who she is and why she's so famous. Thank you for listening. God bless America. Praise the sacred herb. And om out. Om.